look, Mars is not going to be 100% safe. I mean, when those astronauts go to Mars, there's not a 100% chance that they'll come back. Today on the show, you're going to get blasted out of this atmosphere, literally. My guest is astronaut Terry Virts. He's a veteran of two space missions, the second of which he spent 200 days aboard the International Space Station. I ask him all the tough questions, including whether or not he saw aliens up there, what it was like to have to use the bathroom, and about some close calls he had both on the space station and in the cockpit of F-16 fighter jets. This episode is gonna change the way you think about what's going on above our heads, so stay tuned. It's coming up right now. Terry, welcome to The Greatest Stories Never Told. I can imagine of all the guests I've had on this show, someone who has said they have had more near-death experiences than they can count on their fingers is gonna have some wild, wild stories. And uh, <laughs> I'm really excited to, uh, to dive in deep. Thanks so much for being here. Yeah, it's awesome to be here. Very cool. Alien encounters. If anyone's been close to aliens in the human population, it's you. So, I mean, have you seen anything up there that reassured the, the fact that they're out there? I got a chapter of that and how to ask. Oh, okay. Yeah. Now we got to get the book. Is there a God and are there aliens is one of my uh, chapters. So here, here's the deal with aliens. There are a lot of planets out there. There's billions of planets out there. You'd think there's aliens. I mean, if there's that many planets, if there's life on Earth, there ought to be life somewhere else. But when when I look at life, I did a lot of experiments on my own body when I was in space, um, on flowers and mice and, and little worms and other organisms. You know, life is complicated. It's really, really, really complicated. If you put a can of metal out on a rock for a billion years, it would never make a, a, a Coke can, right? Um, and so, uh, something as simple as a single cell organism, I don't think would ever just assemble itself. Um, I think somebody has to make it just like the universe. The universe is such an amazing place. I think somebody has to make it. And I say that as a scientist, not as a religious person, but mm, scientifically, yeah. I, I think life is so complicated. It requires a creator, a watch, right? If you find a watch in the, in the woods, you're not going to think it just the watch just put itself together it's a creator's required. So even though there's billions of planets, I would think there's not life unless somebody had some role in making it happen. And then even if there is life, those planets are so unimaginably far away. They're so far away. The fastest thing that humans have ever shot, you know, Voyager, the spacecraft that was launched in 1976, I think, and it left the solar system. Now Voyager one and Voyager two are both, out of the solar system, it would take those little small satellites tens of thousands of years to get to the nearest star. Um, tens of thousands of years. That's like longer than human history. Um, and that's only one little satellite. Um, clearly to have a civilization is gonna require like aircraft carriers flying through space. So, you know, th this is a long answer to that. You'd think there's aliens. It makes sense if there were, but I don't think there is unless somebody made them. And even if they're there, we're never going to find them because they're so far away. Man, you just crushed my dreams. But, <laughs> you know, at least I won't get probed, I guess, if, if what you're saying is right. But Yeah, yeah. I, I, I can't tell you what I really know. But anyway, that's what I that's that's my story. Okay, I got it. I got it. That's I my story it. and I'm sticking yeah. to it.
<laughs> not only did you do 200 days in space, you, you've flown two missions. You have the world record for flying a business jet, uh, circumnavigating <laughs> right. around the Earth. Before that, you were flying F-16s in the Air Force. I mean, you've done like every eight-year-old's bucket <laughs> list and every 80-year-old's. It's, it's uh, so amazing. Did you always want to take to the skies as a kid? Like, were you like jumping off rooftops with a bungee cord attached to your back as a child, or what? What was your childhood like? Oh, I, I totally wanted to be a pilot when I when I was a kid. The first book I ever read was about Apollo, and so I just got hooked. I grew up with um, airplanes and galaxies and nebulas, and you know that's my wall of my childhood room was covered with that stuff. And uh, actually, I had an F sixteen poster. They had like the original. 1974 red, white, and blue F-16. Um, I had a poster of that when I was a little kid, and then I ended up flying it, which is pretty cool. That's wild. Yeah, I had the SR-71. That, yeah. that was that was mine. Uh, and I had a space shuttle poster. So I had an F-16 and a space shuttle on my wall when I was a kid. And then when I grew up, I got to fly both. So definitely got very lucky. It achieved a lot of bucket list. Was being a pilot realistic for you as a kid? Like, did you say, I'm going to do this? And your parents were like, yes, yes, all the way through. Or is there some doubters? For sure, there's doubters. I mean, um, it wasn't like I was born into a family of pilots. And, you know, my neither one of my parents went to college. And um, so no one really knew what to do. Uh, I was lucky that they supported me. And they really, you know, gave me the support. Um, I, I got a telescope when I was little, but I had to figure out how to use it. Uh, I got a camera when I was little, but I had to teach myself exposure and focus and all that kind of stuff. So they supported me with stuff and then they let me figure it out on my own, which was really important. I think that um, doing things on my own was really the key to be able to get to where I was because I had to you know, learn stuff myself without being spoon fed. Um, so I was really lucky that way. I read the right stuff as a teenager and that book talked about how those guys had been fighter pilots and test pilots before they were astronauts. And that was like my template on how to do what I was going to do. But all my friends would, would say, well, Terry, you're crazy. No one actually gets to be an astronaut. That's a ridiculous, you know, dream. You should go be an accountant or something. Um, but I said, you know what, I'm, I'm going to go for it. Uh, I'm not going to tell myself, no, I'm going to go for it. And if somebody else tells me, no, that's fine. But that was kind of my attitude about it. So spaceflight was always the goal, even even from high school? It, even from elementary school. Yeah, it was. I mean, I, I never really thought I'd get it. I mean, because really, who gets to be an astronaut? Um, right. Yeah. But, I, but that's, I'm, I'm, I guess I'm crazy enough, or I, I don't have a filter. <laughs> if there's something I want to do, I just go try and go do it. Um, and so I got very, I was very lucky. But yeah, that's how it, that was, that was where it all began. And did you always have a lot of interests? Like, you know, now you are known as a photographer, you directed a film, like as a kid, were you uh, a Renaissance child or was it single fo focus? I think it was more ADD. Life? Yeah, I think okay. it was more ADD. But I mean, growing up, I love math and science. I mean, that was like my, that was my thing. But I love French too. And in college, I was a math major and a French minor. Um, and I did an exchange in Finland when I was in high school, lived with a Finnish family. And then I went to France in college and studied there. So I guess I kind of, I like both sides of my brain, right and left side. I like the technical stuff, but I also like the, the, the fuzzy stuff. And I was probably the least likely to write a book as a kid. I mean, my poor English teachers 
or just tortured by how bad I was. Um, and now I just, my third book comes out in a couple of weeks. So. And I saw you wrote the whole thing yourself. No ghostwriting. Absolutely. Absolutely. That I like, I take real pride in that because, um, I have a feeling that a few of my colleagues don't actually write their own books. You know, they have ghostwriters that help them out, but yeah. I wrote, I wrote all of them. Now I had my editor helped a lot and I, I did have help, but, um, you know, there was no ghostwriter or Terry Verts with, it was just me. So good, bad, or ugly. If it was my fault. <laughs> Love it. So I have a friend who's a pilot. He's been flying since he was three years old on his dad's lap. Right. And he can fly the, uh, what, what's the, the, the like the, the smallest jet, you know, and he's 40. Like something. a Learjet probably. Yeah. Like a Learjet. How yeah. the hell do you get to flying an F-16, let alone a space shuttle? Like what happens when you're in the pilot school where they say, okay, this guy is going to get behind the wheel of this, this machine. Yeah. So there was probably 30 guys in my pilot training class and you go through a year of training and then they rank order you and they have assignment night. And so you go find out, you know, what assignment you get. Um, and I got an F-16, which, you know, the fighters are the hardest ones to get. Uh, it depends, it depends on the class. Some classes there's none, some classes there's more, but usually it's like maybe 10% of the guys go on to fly fighters. And I went home and I, I remember telling my grandmother, I'm going to be an F-16. And she didn't know what that was. So I showed her a picture of it. And both my grandparents were like, oh, well, when do you get to fly the big ones? <laughs> and I'm like, grandma, I just had to work my butt off and beat all the other guys in my class so that I could fly the small one. <laughs> that was really hard. It was funny. When do you get to fly the big ones? <laughs> oh, man. So then what what is it like getting behind the 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 controls of that for the first time? I mean, I, I assume that there's simulators first or what's the process look like? Well, there are simulators. Yeah. And, uh, you know, you go through academics. I remember walking into McDill Air Force Base my first day. You're in this big room and there's this it's giant. It says single seat, single engine. And that was the wall was covered with that. And they're trying to bang that home and, you know, knock it into your brain that you're in an airplane. And there's only you No, but literally nobody is going to save you. And you only got one engine. So you have to really start thinking that way. Um, m most airplanes, you know, commercial airliners all have two engines or more. Um, mo a lot of fighter jets like F-15s and F-18s have two engines. The F-16 is single engine. So um, they really kind of knock that home. And you go through simulators and they have some two-seat F-16s. So your first flight is with another guy. But I have been flying T-38s, which is a supersonic jet. I flew it at NASA for 16 years. I got thousands of hours on T-38. It's a fun airplane. It's a great airplane. But, oh, my God, the F-16 is, like, orders of magnitude better. The, the acceleration, you just can't imagine. The, the ability to turn, maneuverability. It's the best airplane, I think, ever made. So that was pretty awesome doing my first F-16 flight. And I, I remember they were testing out it in the training base. We had light version. They were Block 30 F-16s, which are lighter. Um, but they were putting in these new big engines, these new General Electric um, jet engines that had like way too much power. So my very first flight was in this light version with this big giant engine. <laughs> it was downhill from there. Literally the next 2000 hours of F-16 time were never in an airplane with that much power. But it was a it's a pretty great, pretty great airplane. So. First near-death experience, was that behind the, the cockpit of an F-16 or... Uh, oh, yeah. Was that the... 
Uh, there's so many. I when I was at uh, at McDill for F-16 training, my very first night flight, we're flying. I was flying on downwind a couple miles from the base, and um, I pulled the power back to slow down, and I put on the autopilot. And I was only at 2,000 feet, I think, pretty close to the ground. So that it's holding the altitude, and as you slow down, the airplane, you know, nose comes up, nose comes up, nose comes up to fly slower. And I pulled the power back too much. And I got distracted. I was digging out the approach plates to try and see what approach I was going to fly to the base. And the F-16 is a feature. If you start getting too slow, it'll descend to keep your airspeed up. But it doesn't warn you that it's doing that. So all of a sudden, as I'm not paying attention, I, like, I see stuff out of the side. And it was like waves. So I pushed the power up and climbed. And you know, it was a holy crap moment for sure. Um, so I learned my lesson, you know, don't not pay attention for more than a couple seconds because you might hit the ground. Uh, most of my good near-death experiences were at night in the F-16. Mm. And that just, you know, is a, a visibility thing? Is that, you know, can't, like, well, can you think of, like, how good is that autopilot? You know, is it saving your butt at all? Or is that only, like, Tesla autopilot is only when you're on the freeway, right? So is this, yeah, like, well, this is this is the 80s autopilot, but... Um, okay. I, when I was in Korea, we had this mission. It was called Lantern, which is a low altitude at night mission. And um, there's a radar on the airplane that could track the ground. So the, it was called terrain following radar. So you could fly really low um, and it's super dangerous. And normally you want a two, a two person cockpit. You want a navigator to help you fly the jet and he navigates while you fly. But the F-16 single seat, single seat, single engine. So lots of training. Uh, a guy had killed himself doing this lantern thing a couple years before. Um, so my very first, I get checked out. It's months and months of training. It's my first mission. The very first thing I do, I'm going in on a practice bombing run. We're not, I'm not dropping real bombs. It's a practice run. And the very first thing I do, as soon as I start flying the jet manually, I look down and get distracted, just like I had done in that other story. And then a couple seconds later, I hear, pull up, pull up, and my head is smashed in between my knees as the airplane pulls up because it knew I was about to run into a hill. There was a hill right before the target and it was the stupidest thing I've ever done. It's like, as soon as I took over manually, I did exactly what I knew I shouldn't do. And I looked away and I was about to run into the ground and the computer saved my life. So the autopilot in that case did save my life. You must not have had too many of those mess ups though, because somehow you got picked to fly the space shuttle, right? So how does that work? So uh, the shuttle process back when I went through, you actually had to apply in paper. So, you know, everybody had their application and they'd print out a giant stack of paper and send it off to NASA. But I was still a test pilot school student when NASA came out with an announcement that they were going to have a new class of shuttle pilots. And so um, that the reason everybody was at test pilot school was to go to NASA. So most, a lot of us wanted to be astronauts, but a lot of my classmates didn't apply they said, well, we're still students. We haven't even graduated. We don't have any experience. We'll just wait. I'll wait another two years and apply again. Um, and I was too probably dumb and stupid to know any better. So I went ahead and applied. And it was a long, probably six to nine months or maybe a year. It was a long process that you have to have references and you come down for an interview and a medical exam and all that kind of stuff. Well, long story short, I eventually got picked. Um, 
you know, I was selected. I was the youngest pilot there and whatever. And a lot of my classmates who were probably better and smarter and better looking than I am uh, didn't get picked. And the reason was they didn't apply. So that comes back to that lesson that I learned, you know, don't tell yourself no. If there's something you want to do, if you have some gift or talent or ability, you need to go for it and and see what happens. And that that I really learned that lesson when I was applying for NASA. But it was a long process. Um, uh, we came down over Christmas time to interview. I did in my group. And then they said, well, we'll tell you by March. And in March, they said, we'll tell you in April. In April, they said, we'll tell you in May. And so there was just no hurry. Um, and finally, on July 20th, we got a phone call that said, hey, uh, Terry, you want to come down to NASA? And that was like the best moment of my life. I mean, it was so awesome. It was it was like the culmination of a lifetime of dreams, literally. Uh, it was it was really um, awesome. <laughs> well, and when you get that call, does that mean you're going to space or is there still the chance that there might not be a mission or there's a other chance. people that, okay. Yeah. Until the, until you feel the rocket engines light and you're launching, you don't know. Um, although at NASA, pretty much, if you get selected, they're going to fly you every class. Maybe there's one person who doesn't fly or every couple classes, there's one who doesn't fly, but you know, it's 95% chance that you're going to fly. So you, it, it, that was a pretty, that was a pretty big day. That's awesome. And then I read, I think it was an excerpt for your upcoming book, but when the space missions on the books, they send you to some crazy Alaska freezing oh, yeah. cold place to, to yeah. torture you to make sure you can handle it up there. <laughs> yeah, that was called uh, Knowles, uh, the National Outdoor Leadership School. And they have uh, a couple different places around the world, really, where you can go do outdoor experiences as a civilian but NASA contracts with them to give their astronauts torture training, basically. So they try, they, they're hoping for, you know, rain and cold weather and all that stuff. Um, and so I, I got to go to Alaska twice with a, another group of astronauts. They just want to put you in stressful situations. So when you get in space, you're used to that. Uh, you're working with other crewmates. So it's a leadership followership exercise. Um, and it was just awesome. I mean, Alaska, the, the chapter in, in how to astronaut was like two or three times longer. I had to cut so much out of that. There are so many stories I had from all the different survival training I'd done since from the air force Academy when I was 18 years old, all the way until I'm in my forties as an astronaut. Um, I've just done a bunch of these kind of things, um, different types of survival training with NASA, with the Navy, with the air force, with the French air force. Um, it's every time I do it, I think, all right, I'm done. And then I, another one pops up, uh, but they're all good. They're all good in their own way. What, what's been the gnarliest one? Like, did they throw you out there with a knife and just say, go to town? Hopefully you can catch a seal for dinner. Or yeah. Like, what? Oh, for sure. The Air, Force, the Air Force one. I mean, the Air and I, you know, you're a cadet. I was an 18 year old cadet. So they treat you like dirt when you're an astronaut. They're like, they treat you like an astronaut, you know? So it's not. It's still, look, this last one I did, it was two weeks of rain in the 30s and 40s. So that was not the most comfortable thing, but at least, you know, you're you're treated well while you're freezing and wet. Um, But as a cadet, you're treated like an 18-year-old cadet. And so, and uh, I was starving. I mean, I've never been so hungry in my life out in the woods for a week, um, tromping around the mountains of Colorado. So you're burning, you know, probably five or 8,000 calories a day or something. And you're not eating that much. Uh, they gave us a rabbit uh, that we had to 
kill and make rabbit stew out of. Um, Wait, they hand you a live rabbit? Live rabbit. And I, but the hands here, they make you chase it down. They give it, they give it to you. There's no rabbits. I mean, it's, you know, (laughs) in in modern life, Colorado, there's no animals out there. And if there is, Mm. you're not going to catch it. Um, uh, but yeah, so they just give you, they go to the pet store and get a nice fluffy rabbit and he's all happy and you're petting him. And then, um, oh, man. but, but we were all hungry. There was no reservations on that. Um, but those experiences were good. They're not fun, but when you push yourself and you do something that you don't want to do, you didn't think you could do, that was really hard and you succeed, then man, the confidence goes way up for me. I mean, I, you know, I wasn't. I didn't have a lot of confidence. I had never really done anything. And the Air Force making me do these really hard things that sucked. Um, and then succeeding at them, that really, really uh, built up my confidence. There's something to be said for manual and not computer. You know, like in-person is better than computer for most things. Actually, I was in Austria maybe two years ago um, doing a spe- doing a, a corporate speech. Uh, I do a lot of consulting and stuff. And we went to this event in the hall where Beethoven, where the Fifth Symphony, where Beethoven first first played his Fifth Symphony. So just imagine that, like the most famous piece of classical music of all time, was first played in this place. And um, I, it just struck me, like what a different life he led than we lead today. And in the old days, if you wanted to learn something, you'd have to go to the library and find a book and research it, um, or whatever. So knowledge really required effort. You couldn't just Google stuff and I don't want to get rid of Google. I think it's great, but um, it just struck me that, you know, it's going to be really hard for humans in the future to be creative in the same way that humans in the past were uh, because they don't have those experiences and skills that you used to have to do. So there's neurons in our brains that are not getting wired that used to get wired yeah, by just having to figure shit out, like uh, yep. even just you know going to a new city and not having a map in your hand that finds you and locates you and all that. Like kids don't even have that experience. It's crazy. I, I'm I'm making a pitch for a TV show, and I I did this. My buddy runs a gold mine in northeastern Russia, so I went there last year to do a safety talk for him. It's a Canadian company, and uh, I and I wrote it's Northeast of Vladivostok. And I'm like, how far from Vladivostok? So I got on my iPhone, make a map. Okay. There's a thousand miles or it's 3000 miles Northeast of Vladivostok. It took me much less than a minute to figure that out in the 1800s. It would have taken you a trip to the library get the Atlas out and figure And then the map was probably wrong. So being more inefficient and taking longer to do stuff is not a good thing. But there's something about that skill set of, you know, getting stuff done manually uh, that's, that's good to do. Whenever I fly, I would always try and fly manually. You could turn on the autopilot and that's great. But there's something about, you know, controlling the airplane that just, it made me a better pilot. I understood what was going on. Um, and I, that's, that can be applied to just about any situation in life. Computers are great, but learn how to do things without computers if you can. So you're at NASA, you're picked for the mission. What's that like? Getting assigned to a flight was much more of a non-event once I was at NASA. And the one case, my, my boss, the chief astronaut, walked out 
And we were, we were both leaving for the day. We both got to the elevator to go home, you know, at night from work. And he was like, Oh, Hey, you're going to be on SCS 130. And I was like, okay, thanks. <laughs> and went home and had a giant party. Cause it was like the best, I just got assigned to my first space flight. This is so awesome, but it was a total non-event. And then the second time the chief astronaut, she sent me an email, Terry, I forwarded your name to the M- MCOP, the, the group of international partners that decide if you're going to f- fly or not. So that's how I found out my second one, like a one liner email, you know? So, um, Personally, if I was the boss, I would make a big deal out of it. I would like surprise them in the astronaut office meeting or something, stop by their yeah. office on the door. But it Britney was very Spears jump out of a cake or something like that. Exactly. The yeah. dancing girls in a cake. Yeah. So, yeah. no, that's not, that is not how they do it. So that's kind of up to you to celebrate. Is there a little bit of nervousness when you know you're going up there that something might go wrong? Um, it's funny. I'm doing a project right now talking about that very thing um in one of you know in your brain columbia there's a picture of columbia that i took uh the night before it launched uh i was there with the families for launch and landing of course the it was destroyed um so yeah that's in your brain but my my biggest fear wasn't dying my biggest fear was screwing up and having all my buddies see that I made a mistake. <laughs> so that I think most astronauts would probably agree. Uh, that's kind of our biggest fear. You don't want to be the, the one to, push the you don't want to get a nickname. <laughs> yeah. You don't want you don't want to ha- have the Terry Verts maneuver named after you. <laughs> gotcha. In yeah. the air force, in the air force, you don't want a elementary school or a street on an air force base named after you. Um, and at NASA, you don't want like a maneuver named after you. Ah, so what's what's the craziest thing that happened to you on a space flight? Let me think here. There's a chapter in my book uh, about uh, my first book about emergencies in space and, and how to astronaut talk about it too. The uh, we had a what's called an ammonia leak alarm, and there's a couple of different alarms you can get, different warnings you can have, uh, an air leak or a fire, you know, things you would expect. But the ammonia leak is actually the most dangerous because uh, ammonia is just a deadly chemical. And if it gets in the air, it's floating around. Ammonia is the radiator fluid. So the cooling fluids outside the station use ammonia. <clears throat> and that had never gone off before. You get false fires every once in a while. There's even been a few false air leaks, but there's never been a false ammonia leak. And that actually went off. And when it did go off, we were thinking that the space station would die because um, that you can't survive without ammonia. And if ammonia is on the inside, uh, you can't go in there without, you have to keep a mask on the ammonia mask on. Um, and so anyway, the bottom line is if it ended up being a false alarm, but if it had been a real alarm, like we thought it was, uh, it would have killed the space station. It would have taken weeks. Um, but it would have been, it was a pretty serious moment. We spent a day, and you go on the Russian segment because the Russians don't have ammonia. The Americans use ammonia. The Russians use glycol, which is like sugar water. So um, you shut the hatch and we basically all stare at each other and went, well, the station's dead. And it was in the middle of, you know, it's been bad between America and Russia the last few years. And uh, there were sanctions in Crimea. And in the middle of all that, the Russian deputy prime minister called us up and said, hey, you can stay as long as you want. Well, American colleagues, we're going to work together. And it was a, it was a great moment of international cooperation 
in the middle of some really bad times down here on Earth. How far off do you think we are from actually going to Mars? Like, you know, a couple decades or uh, where, where do you see that? Well, um, we there's a chapter about that in How to Astronaut. Uh, we've been 20 years from Mars for ever since Apollo. So Werner von Braun, right after Neil and Buzz landed on the moon, he said he had a program to get us to Mars by 1989. Of course, it was 1969 at the time. Then in 1989, George H.W. Bush became president, and he said, we're going to send men to Mars. And then NASA came back with a $200 billion price tag, and, and he was trying to get the deficit down because the deficit was a problem in the 80s. So they said, okay, maybe not. Maybe we'll do a space station instead. <laughs> um, and it was going to take 20 years to get to Mars. Uh, so, you know, we're, and right now, if we started now, we're 20 years. So we've been 20 years from Mars for the last 50 years. I got to speak at the National Space Council a couple years ago. And when I do, I always make the same point that it's not about the rocket science. It's about the political science. And that applies to lots of things, not just NASA, but um, until we get our political science figured out, uh, it's just hard to have a continuous space program that overlaps multiple um, presidential administrations because what happens in America is we elect one guy and then the next guy doesn't like the last guy, so he cancels all his programs. And then the guy after that doesn't like this guy before him and they cancel his programs. and. Um, it, that, you know, that, that's a really bad way to run a space program and countries like China don't have that problem. They, they don't have to be bothered with these annoyances called elections. And so, um, you know, our founding fathers kind of hosed our space program by giving us elections and congressional wow. districts and congressional districts, because, you know, all the congressmen want the bacon to be brought home for their district. And that leads to massive inefficiencies and in programs that are more focused on just providing jobs than they are on actually getting anything done in space. So I think the real challenge we have is, is political more than it is technical. Hmm. So the technical capability is here now. I mean, it sounds like we can keep people, you know, surviving with a lot of different recycling. That is true. The, pro the okay. problem we have is the rockets. The rockets we have are the old chemical rocket, Saturn V, you know, even the new SLS that NASA has, uh, it's going to be almost 20 years between when it was conceived and when it first flies with people just once. Um, and using a rocket system like that, it's a three-year mission to Mars because it's between six and nine months to get there. And then you have to wait, you know, Mars and the Earth are going around the sun. And when you get there, you have to wait for them to come around again and line up before you can come home. So it's a three-year trip that's a lot of underwear to bring. That's a lot of food to bring. That's a lot of spare parts to bring. Um, the Reese's ain't going to last that long. The Reese's are not going to last that long. So I, I don't think that is possible, honestly. I think we need, there is other technology, uh, other types of rocket engines, electric propulsion that can get you there. You spend a month on the surface and then come back in a year. And I think the one-year mission is a lot more palatable and doable than the three-year mission. John Kennedy said, this nation shall commit itself to achieving the goal of landing a man on the moon um, and returning him safely to the earth. And that was my favorite part of Kennedy's speech, returning him safely to earth. So, you know, if a Mars mission had that as a component and it had a reasonable technical plan to do it, look, 
Mars is not going to be 100% safe. I mean, when those astronauts go to Mars, there's not a 100% chance that they'll come back. Nor is there for the missions we do now to the space station, but Mars even more so. So as long as there was a reasonable plan to come back to Earth, yeah, of course I would I would love to do that. Um, but the the possibility of having that happen anytime in the next couple of years is pretty low. Terry, thanks so much for being here. Uh, this has been a fascinating conversation. So your book is out September 12th, How to Astronaut. I love the title. Did you name it yourself? We had a couple of different ones, and this is, you know, I, I had uh, some other ones. That I like, I was partial to the art of space travel, um, and I wanted to call it Zen and the art of space travel as a nod to Zen and the art of motorcycle maintenance, uh, 1970s classic. But the, the publishers like this one. Everybody liked this one better, so I like this. Nice. It's a fun book. Yeah. The, the, goal, the goal I had, like you said, I wrote it. The goal is for you to laugh and say, wow. Those are like the two reactions that I wanted from the reader. And I hopefully the, all the reviews are saying that exact same thing. So hopefully I, that's, what, that's the way people will they'll like it. It'll be funny. And they'll say, wow, and learn something that they didn't know. And it's easy reading. It's a 51 super short chapters. You can just read them in a few minutes and read it at the beach or at the pool or, you know, sitting on the subway with your mask on or whatever in your, in your biohazard suit, <laughs> making sure you're not touching any other human being. Love it. Well, I get to check out a little preview of it and you're an amazing storyteller and uh, top of the notch uh, writer too. Yeah. You know, something else we, we didn't even touch on. You have uh, such a fascinating life and have done so many things, but your photography, I mean, you took yeah. 300,000 photos when you were up there in space and your book uh, of photography view from above is, is also a must read. Yeah, I got so, that back here. Yeah. yeah. And your Instagram is full of beautiful photos. So make sure you guys go follow Terry on, on social and check out view from above. Well. Yeah, that'd be great. Astro Terry. And, and uh, my movie's coming out too in October. So a couple weeks after my book comes out, I've got a movie that's going to be released. Uh, One More Orbit, which is going to be pretty cool. Oh, amazing. Okay. Last question. What are you doing next? <laughs> <laughs> Actually, so during COVID, I, I've, I've got kind of two tracks in my life. One is business. Um, I'm a guest lecturer at Harvard Business School, and I'm really interested in that. So I've there's a, uh, a green energy company that I'm helping uh, put together and, and start. Um, there's a graphene company that, that graphene is this amazing kind of future material. Um, and there's an aerospace company that we're doing a merger on. So there's a couple of different businesses I'm working with. And then the other half of stuff that I like is TV and film. So I actually just started my own production company because I've got, I probably have 10 different ideas of shows that I want to make or movies I want to make. Um, we made a short film last month and entered it into a film festival that I hope can be turned into a, a feature length doc or a, or a series. It would be a great series about space photography. Um, it would be really interesting. So I've got a couple of these other ideas that I want to get going. Uh, my, my company is 39A Productions. Um, and I launched from Launchpad 39A, so that's where that comes from. But uh, my my motto is intelligent inspiration. So I won't be making like Kardashian uh, makeup shows. I'll I'll hopefully do something something intelligent and, and inspiring. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for being on the show. Re really enjoyed the conversation, and excited to dive into the full book 
at How to Astronaut. Get it on Amazon. It'll be out when the show's out. Thanks, Terry. Awesome. Thanks for having much me. Love. Talk to you later. Right. Thanks so much for watching. If you want to hear a story that's even wilder than that one, click here. You only have five seconds though. Five, four, three, two, one, go.